and welcome to the Glass Moon podcast. In each episode, we take a look at how we can humanise the workplace. Conversations with fascinating guests sharing their huge experience on what really means to build workplaces fit for humans. In this episode, we are tackling barriers, biases and beliefs. What are they? Why do we have them? And what can we do to help us navigate them? And of course, as always, joining me is my partner in conversation, Carol Edmund, founder and CEO of Glass Moon. Hey, Carol, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, I'm really well. We've got some lovely comments uh, about our guest last week, uh, Dan Kieran, and Eve the week before. So I'm good, but it's just us today for our, for our last one before we have a mini break over August. But yeah, no, I'm really well. How are you doing? yeah I'm okay yeah I can't believe it's, it's August actually to be quite honest with you but it's um yeah no they, they were and they were fab guests I'm looking forward to our next stint as well with um the guests that we'll have on so but yeah you just you and me you and me today and uh yeah barrier barriers biases and beliefs um the three b's it's an enormous subject um but one it's so important to understand more about within the human organization because let's face it, we've all got them, uh, biases, that, that, that is. Uh, they're, they're rules about the world and the people in it, born from our experiences, our context, uh, and what we've been taught and told, even though it's so often indirectly, uh, we've all faced barriers, uh, some of them pretty solid, some of them surmountable. And uh, the interesting thing around our belief system is that we're, we're designed to hold those beliefs. We're designed to hold beliefs about our world just so that we can function um, without actually having to continually relearn contextual meaning. Because ultimately our brains are work on interpretation of data received rather than actually what we think is pure fact. Um, because ultimately we're assumption machines. We work with heuristics or, or shortcuts just so that we can make sense of our surroundings. Um, but what I find fasc fascinating is that whilst our beliefs and biases have a survival basis to them, they're so often wrong and can lead to those barriers. Barriers that we encounter from others, barriers we place on ourselves and upon others. So barriers, biases and beliefs is a significant part of your research. Can you tell me a little bit about what you uncovered and how this plays a part in your findings? Sure, and it's... Um... It's an area that continues to fascinate me um, and because you, you live it every day um, and you see, you know, we've seen what we've seen over the last few months um, in terms of Black Lives Matter, you know, Me Too is always kind of kicking around in terms of, you know, what we see in our social media feeds, etc. So it kind of, it's one of these things that I found in the research and it just seems to be just constant. Um, so I think, you know, how did I, how did I find it? And effectively, it's not where I started. I asked the question, as you know, you know, what were the factors that helped you attain in your working life? And people couldn't, literally couldn't tell me. They could spend a lot of time telling me about what got in their way and what hindered them. And I, I, I wanted to kind of get over that and go, yeah, okay. So there were things that got in the way. Yeah, no, I've heard this. I've, you know, other people have talked about similar things, but what, what helped? And then I realized that actually, I had to sort of just stop and take a breath and listen to what people had to say because, um, you know, as you said this to me a few times, you see it in social work, and I think I've said this before in podcasts, you have to meet people where they are. And what I realized it was I was going to learn so much more if I listened to what got in the way mm -hmm. and then figured out, okay, so 
what does that look like? And, and effectively, as I pulled it together, it was, you could see the systemic barriers, you could see the unconscious and the implied, uh, implicit bias and the beliefs, and it was largely limiting beliefs because if it was a limiting belief, it wouldn't be getting in the way. Yeah. And the limiting beliefs um, were either, you know, internally coming from the person themselves, and that was largely a function of their family of origin or their educational experiences or their early work experiences that had really, you know, kind of created um, sort of fear or a lack of confidence or really knocked people off their sort of career perch, sort of, so to speak. And I think because I'd had an amazing sort of 20 years in, in, in Bupa, initially I struggled to identify with it. But of course, it's like anything. It's like the more you sit and listen and the more you immerse yourself in the stories and the lived experience and the, what people are really saying, you, you see the connections come because the dots start to join and so what I did was I sort of turned to the academic and the business literature and realized there's just a ton of amazing social scientists you know in the UK in the US you know across the world frankly um, men and women um, you know are, are gender irrelevant in terms of doing some incredible research um, about you know what gets in the way what are the structural cultural barriers what is the unconscious bias what are the the, the limiting beliefs and the thing I found the most interesting actually which is you know which really kind of speaks to my fascination with storytelling and the power of storytelling was not just their incredible research and what they'd found um, through really detailed research lots of studies but their own personal experience um, and the personal experiences that they were increasingly willing to share um, and I, there was one in particular that st st sort of stuck in my head and it was um, Professor Ben Bars, who sadly um, passed away, I, I think at the end of 2018, um, but he was post-operative um, uh, transgender, uh, had, been a, had been a woman, transitioned to being a man, and when he came back to work, um, and he delivered his first seminar, and I'm bearing in mind, this is at Stanford University, one scientist sort of commented that Ben gave a great seminar today, but then his work is much better than his sister Barbara's because he believed that Barbara was a sister, not realizing that Ben had transitioned. And, and I remember reading that story and I remember reading a little bit more about his work because you know, he had a PhD from Harvard. He studied a really specific area around neuroscience. You know, his work was really, really relevant and really important. And that had been his personal experience. And it just, I think some of the stories from, from people who are transgender were the ones that really stuck in my head. Um, and I think particularly where men had transitioned to being women and how they were treated completely differently when their, when their gender was, was a woman. You know, everything from people help, you know, helping them carry suitcases that they didn't think they were capable of carrying to um, telling, that they're, telling them that the driving wasn't very good or helping them kind of parallel park and things like that. And at those, I think for, for me, some of those stories were the most compelling because people had been um, you know, had been both genders and had a completely different experience when, when they become uh, women. So that was a real sort of wake up call. And I think the other area is, was around um, intersectionality and the intersection of our different identities that can, can be that double whammy, that double bind of, you know, so um, gender, ethnicity, you know, the double sort of bind of that. And, um, Professor Crenshaw's work around intersectionality from from the 80s uh, you know the story of um, women who worked in a 
a car manufacturing plan and she went to went to court around saying that she was being discrimin discriminated against both in relation to her gender and her ethnicity and the judge ruled that you know she wasn't being discriminated discriminated against on the basis that the the plant employed women and they employed black men but couldn't say that actually it was a function of she was a black woman that was creating this sort of double bind of double sort of oppression and discrimination and again reading that and, and, and reading the incredible work that had been done, done around that to raise this awareness and that was in 1987 and here we were at the point in time I was doing the research which, which was 2005 and it didn't feel like very much had moved forward in that time in the workplace and so I sort of summarised all of that research and thinking under the banner of barriers, bias and beliefs and found all sorts of things that really contributed towards it, including things like imposter syndrome, which came over more, more with the sort of um, limiting beliefs and the research that was done on that and that, that was identified in the 1970s, um, all the glass barriers. And, you know, I have a fascination with glass barriers, including um, sort of developing my own, and it might be a bit of an overclaim to say I sort of coined this phrase of the glass boot boss. Uh -huh. which is you've got somebody who you know who's your boss who's got their foot on your head but it's a bit invisible it's a bit you know it's there it's more of a feeling than anything else but it's that whole sort of you're not sure whether it's there it's that sort of sense and then over a period of time you start to you know see patterns and you start to see things that became become pretty obvious over time that actually you've got somebody who has got their foot on your head um, but it's hard to detect it. But once you detect it, it's realized, you realize it's there and you're going to like remove your head from their boot uh, in whatever that looks like um, and stuff. And so that was a real kind of wake up call and eye opener for me. And, and that, you know, that was based on my, you know, my own personal experiences and, and listening to the stories of other women as well. So, so yeah, that, that's, that, I think that's what kind of developed this fascination in this and it continues. And if I'm honest, if I was researching it now, I'd add another two two B's to the three and it would be banter. I can't bear the banter word. I think there's so many things it's used as a catch-all for, oh, we were only having a laugh or have you got a sense of humor or much worse um, or bullshit, um, you know, in terms of the, the bullshit that we're quite often on the end of, you know, some people might call it gaslighting, but, you know, um, so, so I think you could go on with the, you know, the barriers, bias and beliefs and keep, at, at, you know, adding things that just really make us sit up and pay attention to what does get in the way. But look, you know, what I came to realise was it's that stuff is there and it needs to be navigated, but it's having that awareness first and foremost. And then it's having the, I think the commitment and the determination to, if you want to have a fulfilling working life, you've got to be prepared to navigate it because it's not, all of this stuff is not going anywhere anytime fast. No, no, and and, and you know the, the the banter, the microaggressions. Um, there's so much there. You know, it's it's a little bit like the emperor's got no clothes, isn't it? We need to we need to just see it for what it is. Um, and the glass boot. You know, the the, the strongest glass boot. Oh, I didn't realise. And you said about joining the dots, and it's only when you look back and you it was actually um, a, a woman that I worked with, and her 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 boot was was firmly firmly on my head which was fascinating when you when you look back over your experience and you know and I still you said about the imposter syndrome I've, I've always called it my little girl syndrome and, and what I mean by that is sort of I'm sitting out I'm so used to being not so much now which is fantastic but I'm certainly my I've been I've grown up in my corporate career usually being the youngest and the only female on the, the leadership board and, and I still remember 
actually sitting there and it was one of I don't know I've been on the uh, the senior leadership team for two or three weeks and uh, the PA wasn't able to, to turn up to take the minutes who was asked me and I still remember sitting there and I didn't say anything and I did it but it, it you know it, it it was me that was asked would, would you could you take the minutes and it is it's really interesting it's as you say you start to join the dots as you as you sort of look back and and you know these 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 small elements these microaggressions these this banter all of these things add up and of course we know that biases lead to stereotyping um which is normal for the human being because we we lump characteristics together it helps us to to quickly assess potential danger um but they can be so wrong really wrong um and, and the more we, in, we entrench stereotyping, the more that we see the behaviour that we're not even calling out around us, it becomes more and more entrenched and it, it leads to prejudice. And prejudice, as we know, has been the foundation for some of the worst atrocities we've, we've ever seen in the world. Um, I, I read a brilliant book by Robert Fuller and his, his work on, on this field. And his book's called Somebody's and Nobody's because we've all been somebody and we've all been nobody. We've all experienced it. But he talks about what he calls rankism, uh, which is, is basically rank-based abuses of power that can cause so much harm. And um, if any of you, if those that are listening know of Philip Zimbardo's work and his Stanford prison experiment, experiment which actually led him to, to look at exactly the same thing. And he now calls that the evil that we label as evil in this world is actually the exercise and abuse of power, which is, which is really fascinating. And, and, you know, you say about that double bind as well. In the, in the workplace, we, we still know today that ethnicity and socioeconomic status are still the biggest hurdles to career success. Um, you know, jo white job applicants are found to be 74% more likely to have success than applicants from ethnic minorities with, it, with identical CVs. You know, your story about his sister's work, uh, his brother's work, sorry, is so much better than his sister. I mean, that story, you, you beg us belief when you hear it. Um, but we also know that university professors are found to be far, far more likely to respond to emails from students with white sounding names. We've got the Gender pay gap, it remains despite it now being 50 years since the Equal Pay Act. Caring responsibilities, disabilities, denying access for so many to, to the workplace. I mean, I could go on. I, and I think for me, it's how much talent and creativity and innovation are we actually missing out on? Um, and the, what's fascinating as well is that we spend millions on unconscious bias training. And we know it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work because it doesn't address that systemic structural underlying issues and, and causes around it. It's, it's, it's that sort of case of um, sort of old, oversold science. So we, we've got to do something about it. We know that. Um, but what, what, do you, what do you think we can do about it? What can we weave into the fabric of our workplaces so that, well, hopefully we can start to at least crack and shatter um, the glass ceilings, cliffs, and of course, those invisible boots. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really tough one because it is so systemic, um, you know, and I, I think when I remember going through a really frustrating phase when I found all the reasons and 
as to why people couldn't attain and what got in the way for, for women or minority groups and went through this really frustrated almost quite sort of um I won't quite say depressive phase but just like it just felt so overwhelming felt so overwhelming and you know and I was born in 1970 when you know um we, we should have kind of cracked the whole gender pay gap back then. And I don't know if you've seen Made in Dagenham, the film. It's one of my favourite films that kind of captures uh, what happened with Barbara Castle and the women at the uh, Dagenham Ford plan. And it's just amazing. And and actually how they had, you know, the husbands and, the, and, and Bob Hoskins character who like really supports them and Bob Hoskins supported them. And I think the union rep wasn't in the movie because his mum had had to work two jobs to make ends meet. Um, you know, just watching that from 1968 and thinking, God, you know, that's that's courage, that is resilience, that is bravery to be able to stand up and be counted and drive that sort of level of change. And then the legislation, Barbara Castle really pushed it through that it changed in 1970. And you think 50 years later, it's just staggering. And um, I'll tell this sort of anecdote really quickly. But when so I was born in 1970 and the British cohort study 1970 that was run was basically babies born between I think it was something like the 5th and the 11th of April and um, it's about 19,000 babies put onto this longitudinal survey which I've been on for the last my mother signed me up and I've been on for the last 50 years and interestingly when I was doing the research for the thesis um, I found some research on um, glass ceiling so to your point around social mobility and social economic um, status and, and class and things and uh, Professor Abigail Knight had actually used the data from BCS 70. So, you know, this longitudinal survey, my, my kind of data is part of this data set. And so it was almost a sort of, you know, ring the research bell of, oh my gosh, this is an exciting day. And, and she coined the phrase, the glass floor, in terms of forget the glass ceiling for people that are in those lower social economic groups of which, you know, I, I literally was one of them and my data was part of the data set. So that I was tremendously exciting. Um, you know, that's why the, the thesis became about kind of getting through the glass floor and the glass ceiling. Um, you know, and I, you know, I look at younger people today and I think, you know, if, if I was speaking to my younger self, you know, back when I was 16, 17, went into the workforce literally after sort of higher, higher level grades in Scotland and went into work in a steel stockyard and stuff before I, you know, got my much better job at Bupa. But what would I say if I was that 17-year-old young woman now? Because it's just so, you know, it's so different. So much has changed and then not very much has changed when it comes to, you know, kids coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, kids coming from families that, you know, are, are struggling to make ends meet. Um, and how much time and energy can they really put into supporting their educational attainment? And even though we see girls coming out of school with, you know, with, with better grades, coming out of university with better grades, but I just don't think organisations are geared up to be on the receiving end of um, working class kids and how they really create the, the career pathway. Um, and I, I don't know, certainly when I was running Bright Horizons in the regards, you look at some of the apprenticeship programs that some organisations are doing and they're very, they are enlightened and they are innovative, but you just think, gosh, we need to be doing so much more because there's so, you know, kids from working class backgrounds are really a disadvantage. They, you know, they kind of so much potential. And certainly that's what I used to see in the big workforces we had in, in Bright Horizons in regard where largely people with lower educational attainment but an absolute ton of potential and you know I remember 
Inverted Horizons, when we did the apprenticeship programme, I would always turn up and speak to, you know, our young students um, who are joining us at sort of 17, 18 to join the apprenticeship programme. Um, great programme uh, that we ran in the business that was run by the team back in the day. And I would look at them and I'd think, gosh, you know, when I was 17, what were they thinking? What do, what do they want to hear? There's like older women say to them that resonates anyway, sort of shape or form. Um, and stuff and I just used to say look this is a great opportunity it might not always feel like it because it might be hard work but you're getting that opportunity to to get a qualification and to get work experience and to get paid and you're not running up massive sort of student debt so this this might not always feel like it but it's a great opportunity to embrace it and we will do everything as as your kind of employer to to support you in all sorts of ways and and that's why actually you know one of the things we, we obviously worked on together back then was you know the building resilient thinking program and how do we create an environment where because people can't learn if they've not if they're not you know if, they, if their well-being and the conditions aren't there for them to do that and you know that was obviously one of the things in my earlier research from my master's was around how do you create the environment where people can from a well-being point of view, be well enough and have the headspace to to learn and grow and move into leadership roles because that was my pathway. I worked with incredible people in Grupa that created that the conditions for me to be able to do that. And so I think I'm really driven and really motivated to try and create those conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I've, I've seen the difference it makes in terms of tapping into people's innate potential and as you would say, you know, their intrinsic motivation. And then you create the environment where they can do like sort of local innovation, get really creative, whether it's in the nurseries or their, you know, their services and do amazing work. And you see them start to get over things like imposter syndrome. You start to see these limiting beliefs that they've carried around you know even if they're still young they're, they're relatively young lives carried around with them and they start to get over it they start to believe the kind of the you know the sort of limiting beliefs start to turn to the what if is that possible you know is there possibility in this and i'll never forget one of my senior team who'd been with me for a long time in Bupa said to me you know when i was 16 somebody said to me you'll never make anything of yourself now i i don't know how anybody could utter those words to anybody never mind a young impressionable 16 year old but you know, she went on to be really successful in the organization and actually she got her first MD job a couple of months ago. And so, and she messaged me to say, you know, um, thanks so much for being on my leadership journey. Thank you for believing in me, even in times when I didn't believe in myself. And you read a message like that and you think that's, you know, that's why we do this, you know. Um, and I know that she'll do a fantastic job and she'll create the conditions in that organization because she had the chance because she worked with people that you know believed in her and, and wanted her to take the opportunity and so I think I think as, as organizations it's back to all the stuff that you and I talk about around the deeply human bits like I think when we get deeply human and we realize that you know we're not all born with you know we're, we're privileged and you know that kind of entitlement to um, opportunity and when we realize it's like that and there is a class divide still um, or the class ceiling as some people call it then let's work hard to create the conditions where we can remove that um, as much as possible um, because I think in terms of that ability to just tap into that innate potential can be can be huge really huge oh god I mean completely and I think that that responsibility of a, an organization whatever their makeup to be able to create those conditions because we miss so much we miss the stars we miss the talent because we don't we literally don't see it or we're biased against it they don't realize it 
So what is it that we can actually do to help remove some of those systemic issues? And, and I know we, we cover a lot of, um, sort of breaking bias, if you like, on our human leadership programme, um, and particularly about how you can take out those environmental cues. So, so, it, so almost the bias isn't, isn't given a chance to, to arise. But um, you're so right around so much of it also, we need to look at what's inside ourselves as well. And, and, and turning to like the various biases and beliefs that we place on ourselves. And a lot of it, and I know we cover a lot of it in our ME programme as well for individuals giving tools to overcome those blockers and limitations, just as you were, you were saying, but it's, it's the stories we tell about ourselves laid down over years from our experiences that, that hold us in place or can hold us in place. And you hear it so often, don't you? You know, it, it's either it's a teacher or a mentor or a, an, uh, you know, an aunt or, or whoever has just believed in you enough for you to be able to, to step outside of that narrative, um, taking a step outside your own imposter syndrome, as you, as you said. Um, and, you know, it's those things that we actually, we hold ourselves back. It's almost like we're not worthy of the progression or, um, you know, I, it, it, I shouldn't be here. All, all of those elements, you know, uh, I still remember my, uh, my, my dad, who is a, he's a hero of mine. You know, he, he left school at the age of 14 and desperately wanted to, to continue his education. He, he couldn't. Um, and I always remember him telling the story about his mum, my nana, who was a fantastic woman. And he said, I'm, I'm going to go to university, mum. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to be able to do this. And he, he'd been working for, for a long time now. And she turned around and she said, that's not for folks like us, son. You know, and, and there's so much context in there. There's so much, you know, what we've learned, how we hold ourselves in, in place. And, but I remember also being given a piece of advice a long time ago that actually has really helped me. And it's, it's what, what others think of you says far more about them. It doesn't define you. And, and there's so much about what we think we know what others will think or say about us, because actually it's coming from our own narrative and we can hold our own worst critic right between our, our ears. And, and as you said, you've worked in deeply human businesses. You've seen these limitations played out. You've supported young individuals um, to be able to, to see around and navigate around it um, and to overcome those, those inner fears and that inner critic. What, what do you think, if you were giving advice to, to any leader out there or any individual maybe, what would be the, your, your key piece of advice around being able to truly attain the career success or even the life that, that you want? I mean, I think one of the, one of the first things that if I was running a big organization again, and, and certainly we're, we're planning to do this in, in Glassman as we set up Glassman services, is I would, I would change people, I would change the HR role to being coaches and counselors. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've you know, long held the belief that people in the line go to HR for them to solve their people problems. And that's not where they get solved because what you tend to click into is like kind of, you know, um, damage limitation or compliance or process adherence. And actually what most people want is a, you know, is a, 
is a grown-up conversation or even if they don't need know they need a grown-up conversation you know it's quite often a mature or a candid or a, a kind but candid conversation um and so i think you know I, certainly when i was supporting some of my long-term colleagues in the childcare sector during um you know COVID-19 crisis it was a crisis group set up and, and a few of us kind of um, gave our time to work on that with leaders in the sector and I remember chatting to them one of them just sort of um separate to the direct work we were doing he was saying we spend so much of our time just coaching and counseling around mental health challenges around um, financial worries around you know some of those basic sort of societal and economic day-to-day -day issues uh, you know, I know last time on the podcast I talked about sort of food banks and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think, um, I just think companies need to gear themselves up, especially post, well, not post-COVID, but especially in this era, this different era that we're in now in terms of this pandemic reality. Uh, and so, insofar as HR departments, line managers being able to have um, realistic conversations about what's, um, without being intrusive, what's happening in people's lives, um, you know, in terms of how can we support, how can, you know, what, what is it, you know, you, you know, you need, um, and, and less about grief, you know, allowing things to get to grievance level or disciplinary level or part and company, um, you know, in a, uh, in a way that's not amicable. And so I think it's, you know, the role of HR needs to move much more towards, um, especially, you know, we look at sort of, um, self-service in terms of through technology using technology well to make sure the more kind of transactional stuff the stuff that needs to be done but doesn't add a huge amount of value and put the human back into human resources in as much as we're deep, being deeply connected with people who need help support help and support who need compassion who need understanding and so i think that that would be one of the first things i do is look at how do we create much more of a coaching much more of a counseling much more of a listening um, and i know a lot of organizations are putting in things like you know mental health first aid and resilience programs and well-being programs and things but unless that lives in the line with the people who you have your day-to-day -day experience with, you know, your line manager, your boss or whatever, um, you know, a lot of the well-being initiatives can be largely meaningless, to be frank, um, and probably a bit, a bit too direct, but hopefully I won't say anything that will get me bleeped out this week. But really, truly, it is about saying, look, let's put the investment into where the impact lives and the impact lives in the line. Um, and so I think that's the first thing that we can do. And I think one of the things I've picked up even, just even in the last few weeks is organizations are moving away. So your point around unconscious bias, you're right, you know, it's an $8 billion industry and Harvard's done some research and it is largely ineffective. And one of the reasons it's ineffective um, in terms of the training is because um, people think, oh, everybody's a little bit sexist. We're all a little bit homophobic. We're all a little bit racist. Actually, no, we're not, but it's very, you know, implicit bias or unconscious bias training helps us normalize it like it is and so some organizations are moving to privilege awareness which I think is just such a fantastic way of turning the challenge on its head um, and actually connecting with what will resonate way more um, in terms of making us all a bit more aware of the level of privilege the sort of sense of entitlement that we might have the things that has never had to cross our mind um, whether that's from, you know, a gender, um, race, ethnicity, whatever it is. Um, and, I, and so I just think it's, you know, that, that could be the new 
I hate to say panacea, that's, that's probably a bit overly optimistic because this stuff is deeply embedded and it's systemic. But the notion of privilege awareness and creating that awareness, because you and I know without awareness, you, you can't shift anything. Um, and I think the more organisations really dig into that, what does the relationship look like on that day to day basis? How do we make sure, you know, companies might have made sure that they don't have a glass ceiling. But if the glass, if the organisation is peppered with a ton of glass boot bosses, you know, um, they're much harder to identify. You know, uh, organisations can look at the data and see whether they've got gender pay gaps, whether they've got ethnicity pay gaps, whether they've probably got different kinds of um, glass barriers in, in place. But from a, you know, from a building, a kind of trust and from a building, a relationship with that, your line manager, the boss, we know that that person has such a massive impact on your day to day experience. And whether it's good, whether it impacts your mental health, whether it makes you want to leave the organisation. Um, and you know we know there's a ton of stats that say most people don't actually leave their organizations they leave their line managers I mean I think there's probably a, a bit of truth in both um, but people are going to need the support and they're going to need the, the understanding and they're going to need compassion and if everybody's feeling the pressure coming down the line as organizations trying to kind of adapt to the, the new environment that we're in you, you just feel that like there's a sense of this pressure cooker building so we've got to find ways to do you know to do this differently and I, I think it starts with that that awareness piece and the compassion piece and let's upskill people to be good coaches to be counsellors to to listen um and to not jump in with prejudice and, and bias and and just see what's really in front of us rather than what might be easy to just assume yeah no, no completely and, and i i think that is such incredibly powerful and, and, and valuable advice and, and, and really shifting the way we're working. And as we've said before, it's, it's you know, human resources got a bad name. And what I mean by that is, let's just shift it from human resources to resourcing humans. And as you mm -hmm. said, give, give them, give individuals the real skills to have human conversations. Um, so, and, and uh, no, I mean, uh, Fantastic. I mean, well, I know we could we could we could talk and talk and talk, but um, I just really wanted to to close. Really, uh, I, I love Michelle Obama's quote. She says, "Don't ever make decisions based on fear. Make decisions based on hope and possibility. Make decisions based on what should happen, not what shouldn't." Now, I know that is really is easier said than done, but it really gets you gets you thinking and. There's, there's so much of what we do is based on letting our fear dictate and our inner critic have the last word. Um, we, we have a choice about how we treat ourselves and others. Um, and I think we've got to really be able to start to create that human workplace, workplaces with universal dignity, which allow us to adapt and grow together. And, and you're absolutely right. You, you can't change what you don't see. So we, we've got to start to, to, to see it um, and understand it. Fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Oh my goodness, I could just, just keep, keep talking. But um, thank you for listening as, as always. Um, and if you'd like to know more about the tools, the knowledge and the programs we deliver to help you establish your human organization, or you'd just like to get in touch, share your thoughts, then please drop us a line. Check our website out for more information at glassmoon.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to share, leave a review, subscribe and check back for any episodes you may have missed. We're taking a short break, but uh, till next time.